Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. This is Stephen Robles and today we have a very special interview with author Craig Keener. We interviewed his wife earlier this year, Medine Keener, and her experience in Africa through civil war and the amazing miracles that she experienced. And now we got to interview Craig Keener. He authored the two-volume set called Miracles, where he has documented footnotes and medical records of many miracles that have happened worldwide over the past several decades. And so it's going to be an incredible time of hearing him talk about some of those miracles that he has researched and even seen and experienced. So before we get to that interview, just want to remind you again of Impact 360. Again, we know this can be a difficult time for many. Maybe you're even struggling with that lack of contact with other people. Well, we would say, why don't you take this time and try out Impact 360's video lessons on truth, worldview, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you go to impact360.org and use the promo code FREEMIND, you actually get half off. You get $25 off one of those online courses, and you can do it right from home with your family. And if you have a high school student who's going to be going to college soon, Impact 360 also has their gap year program where students can go to Impact 360 for this nine-month program and get the worldview training, Christian biblical worldview foundations before they go off to college. They get it from Impact 360. They learn from some of the best of the best in Christian apologetics, and it's just an incredible opportunity for students to get a solid foundation before going out to college wherever they go. And so you actually get a free application. So the application fee is totally waived when you use the promo code FREEMIND for that as well. So you can get all the information on the Gap Year program and those online courses at impact360.org. And now here's our interview with Craig Keener. Yeah, so we have Dr. Keener on today, and like I like I said, um, so excited, so honored, man. This is this is a real privilege for us, and hopefully, one of of many in the future. But I wanted to just start today with, um, can you tell us a little bit uh, just how you grew up? Because as far as I understand, you grew, did not grow up in a Christian context. You got, uh, you know, came to the Lord maybe I don't know if it was a teenager or college or, or what. Can you tell us a little bit of just about that background story? When I was, I mean, um, it's not a Christian context directly, but I mean, I grew up in the U.S., so there were, I mean, there were Christians here, so not like totally isolated, uh, but yeah, uh, didn't grow up in a Christian home, didn't grow up in a, uh, didn't grow up in church or anything, Um, didn't really hear things hostile about it. I mean, our family just didn't talk about religion, but myself. I don't know. I don't know where I got it. I guess I just. I thought, you know, since we had evolution, and since I thought I could explain the universe without recourse to the hypothesis of a god, because that's the stuff I was reading. I thought that God was not a necessary concept for anything, and so I was an atheist. I thought that was the smart thing to be. Um, I I mean, I did tell my mom I didn't believe in life after death, and she told me she didn't believe in it either, but and that was about as close as we got to talking about religion But I, you know, with my family, but I did make fun of Christians in school and stuff. And um, But then I started wondering, you know, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, it's a lot, you don't want to stake all of eternity on even like a 1% chance that you're 
you might be wrong. Uh, that's not a very smart thing to do. And when I was about 13 and I started reading Plato, that's, that's what kind of got my attention for thinking about eternal questions. Uh, Plato, of course, doesn't talk about Jesus. Uh, Plato has some weird ideas. But Plato emphasizes a lot about uh, what's eternal matters more than what's temporary. And it really got me thinking about those questions. And so, you know, after, I don't know, maybe a year or two, I, I just started saying, you know, God or gods or anything, if you're out there, please show me, because there's no way. I mean, I I figured the only way we can have what 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 I would now call eternal life, the only way I could live on eternally, have immortality, it, Plato's arguments for that didn't make sense. And so it only made sense if there was somebody infinite or some, something, something infinite or eternal that I could connect to. And I realized that it couldn't come from my end. It could only come from the end of whoever was infinite. And unless that infinitely powerful and eternal being happened to be infinitely loving, I was in big trouble, especially since I'd gone around saying that there wasn't one. So I, uh, I, you know, I just started saying, if there's a God or anything out there, please, please show me. Wow. And I, I need to jump in there because, yeah, when I was 13 and I would watch, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Say by the Bell, I would usually follow it up with, you know, diving into Plato as well <laughs> <laughs> and uh, kind of critiquing that, thinking through that. So, you know, you're just an average 13, nothing to see here. Um, but yeah, so you, that man, that's, I mean, that is wild that at 13 you began to do that. So that, was it that early on that you began to open up to Christianity or where did it go from there? As far as being open to Christianity, that took a little bit longer. Um, and, and even as far as praying to a God that was out there, I was probably 14. Yeah, I think it was 14. One day I was walking home from school. I, I mean, I, I could go into way more detail, but that, uh, I guess I could add in this. I did have a cousin. Well, actually, that whole family, they were, they were really committed Christians. They'd been praying for us. They didn't dare witness to us, though, because my family would shut them down. Mm. Uh, they, they, they couldn't be more, more vocal, but they, they were praying for us. And one day, uh, one of them was singing in a youth choir, and we went to hear, because it was my, my cousin, you know, and it was a Christian youth choir. And I thought, well, these people are nice. You know, if, if, if there's a God, well, then the logical thing to do would be to, to follow him. And it also only made sense. I mean, if there was a God, then I owed God everything. I should give God everything. But as I looked around, it seemed like back then 80%, I think today the numbers are closer to 70% of the population of this country claimed to be Christian. But I couldn't tell by how most of them lived, and I just kind of blended the other ones in to that figure. I couldn't tell by how most of them lived that it made a difference in their lives. And I figured if the Christians don't really believe in this, why would I? So, you know, my cousin was like an outlier on that. but. Eventually, uh, one day, some people stopped me on the street and asked me if if I uh, 
knew where I was going to go when I died. And I, I made a joke about it, but they were really serious. In fact, they didn't laugh at my joke. And, I, <laughs> and so <laughs> I got serious too. Because even though I didn't think Christianity was true, I didn't want to stake all of eternity on me being right on that. So uh, they started explaining to me from the Bible how to be reconciled to God, that Jesus died for me, Jesus rose again. And, you know, I listened for a while, but finally I said, you, you guys, look, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in the Bible. Can you give me some sort of other evidence? And they really didn't seem like they were ready to do that. So I said, okay, uh, tell you what, uh, if there's a God, where did the dinosaur bones come from? <laughs> and, you know, you ask a stupid question, you get a stupid answer. They said, the devil put them there. So, <laughs> so they weren't trained in apologetics. They certainly weren't trained in paleontology. And I said, okay, I'll see you guys later. <laughs> uh, and I started to walk off because it was just, at that point, it was just over the top. I knew that was nonsense. You know, those were the people who were available. And I'm grateful to them because, okay, they didn't know paleontology. They didn't know the right answers to certain kinds of questions. But they did tell me from the Bible how to be made right with God. And the Holy Spirit did the rest. I, I you know, I'd argued with them for like 45 minutes. I, I was walking home. They yelled after me, you know, you're going to burn forever in hell. <laughs> Not the usual uh, kind of approach that we encourage in terms of sharing God's love with people. But anyway, uh, but as I was walking home, I felt what I understand now to be the Holy Spirit overwhelming me. I mean, I'd studied different religions. I'd studied different things. Uh, lots of different philosophies, but this was different. This was a personal encounter, you know, and I'd, I'd been asking for God to show me. I had kind of wanted, you know, empirical evidence, archaeological evidence, scientific evidence, but as I got home, this this went on for maybe 45 more minutes. As I, as I got home, I was just so overwhelmed by the presence of God. He was undeniably in the room with me. There was no, no other way to explain it. And just so overwhelmed by his presence, finally I said, God, I don't understand how Jesus dying and rising from the dead, how that saves me, how that makes me right with you. But if that's what you're saying, then I'll believe it. But God, I don't know how to be saved. I don't know how to do this. So if you want to save me, if you want to make me right with you, you're going to have to do it. And all of a sudden, I felt something rushing through my body like I'd never felt before. I jumped up, scared out of my mind, uh, and that was the beginning of my my Christian life. Wow. And that's, you know, it's encouraging on the one hand, because, you know, while we do want to, you know, grow in our understanding and our ability to present the gospel and, you know, articulate it and even help people understand the reasons why it's true. Thankfully, it doesn't depend on us and the one-to-one -one correlation because um, the Holy Spirit sometimes can take a very rough pile of mess that we present and turn it into something amazing. <laughs> so that, that, is, that, that is encouraging. I, I mean, I mean it, was, it was rough. They were the only people who were available. They were mm. the only people out sharing their faith. There, actually, there had been some, some Christians in high school who tried to share their faith with me, but I'd shut him down. So uh, that was more my fault than theirs. But Wow. 
Well, you just never know, you know, sometimes just being available and, and kind of going out and, and taking that risk. Uh, you might play a part in someone's story like that. So that's, yeah, that's amazing. So you become a Christian. Do you kind of right away, are you like, you know, kind of running the aisle, Christian, Holy Spirit, you know, handling snakes? How, how did you get into like, and to the place of, of being open to the Holy Spirit? And also, how did that interact with your academic life? Is that took form wow yeah that's a long <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> no it's fine it was two days later i walked into a church the pastor i knew of him because his daughter was like a year behind me in school and sometimes i'd be running to school in the rain and he'd see me uh, as he was driving his daughter and so a couple times i think he had stopped and picked me up and given me a ride to the school and so i always thought well you know just as a is a gesture of, you know, he, he he showed me kindness, so I'd, I'd visit his church if I ever visited the church. And it just happened it was the nearest church to me. So uh, I visited the church now because I was kind of desperate <laughs> to, know, to know about God, to cut more to the point, because not all of the details are relevant. But the pastor asked me if I was sure that I was saved, because I told him I I'd gotten saved, and I said, actually, I don't know if I did it right. And so, <laughs> yeah, so thank God it was a, it was a solid church, you know. So he, he led me in the, the sinner's prayer, and it was basically, yeah, Jesus died for me, Jesus rose again, and God, please save me. It's basically what I'd done a few days before, but like a couple days before. But in, in any case, this time I felt the same overwhelming sense of God's majesty, and there was just no way I could praise him enough unless God gave me the words to do it. God knows lots of languages, so, you know, it starts coming out in another language. I didn't, I didn't know there was a name for that. <laughs> I, I, I was only been a Christian two days. I didn't know what the Bible, I didn't know anything in the Bible, pretty much. So, I uh, had that experience. Now, I know this doesn't happen to everybody two days after their conversion or but I really needed something. I, I had been an atheist. I didn't have answers yet to my intellectual questions. Uh, all I knew was I'd met God, and I, but I, didn't, I didn't have a way to explain anything. So this was just a really powerful experience in my life. And, and then uh, as time went on, you know, I was taught certain things in the church and, and figured, okay, well, this is what Christians believe. This is what I should believe. And I'm reading the Bible on my own. And Eventually, I start running into some problems because, I mean, most of what they taught me was was right, but not quite everything went quite exactly with everything in the Bible. Right. And, you know, and different churches hold different views, you know, and, you know, when you're a minority, you stick together with those of us who were actually practicing Christians were a minority, and so we we stuck together across denominational lines, and so I'm always hearing different things and, you know, going back to the Bible to check it and and finally convinced that, okay, well, if we say that we get the rest of our doctrines from the Bible, then if we're going to accept the doctrine that the Bible is God's Word, I may have to adjust the rest of my beliefs. When, when I was a young Christian, I thought, you know, I worshipped my mind before I was a Christian, and my intellect led me astray. and so. Uh, I'm going to just just depend on the Holy Spirit. Now, I didn't realize that as I'm reading the Bible, of course, I'm using my intellect. And as mm. I'm trying to answer the questions that are coming up to me, 
that's using my intellect, but you know, I was pretending that I wasn't. But then one day I'm, I'm praying, and I feel like the Holy Spirit encourages me that he wants me to understand Scripture. And I say, wait, wait, I don't have to understand it. I just have to get the revelation. <laughs> and immediately he gives me all these Scriptures, just all of them together at once, about you know understanding uh, Matthew 13, the, the, the good soil was the, the, that those were the ones who heard the word and understood it and brought forth good fruit, uh, the renewing of your mind and all these things. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I realized, okay, well, that means I do get to use my intellect. You know, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm. Sometimes we can, we can use knowledge in a not very wise way. Yeah. Proverbs also speaks of a proverb in the mouth of fools. Sometimes we can we can deploy our knowledge. Well, it's like you can you can use your knowledge to come up with medical cures. You can use your knowledge to come up with bombs that kill people. Right. Anyway, but I have the the fear of the Lord now, and with that kind of foundation, I was able to build on that. Uh, for a long time, I stayed away from the kind of studies I'd done before. I I'd really loved ancient. Greek and Roman history and mythology and so on. I hadn't known that some of that could be useful for Bible background, especially the history. But eventually, I found that out. But first, um, I went to I went to a Bible college. Of course, we studied the Bible there, but I was learning Greek and Hebrew, uh, starting out at the beginning. I was reading the Bible so much. I was reading for for a number of weeks running, uh, and then some other weeks separately. I, I would read through the New Testament once a week. After a while of that, I began to realize, okay, there's certain things that it's taking for granted that the author knows that the original audience knew. It became really obvious when I, you know, you have these verses that stand out to you, but then what about these other verses? Like Paul says he's writing this to the to the believers in Rome, or he's writing this to the believers in Corinth. Well, apparently this actually was a letter to the believers in Rome. This actually was a letter to the believers in Corinth. And for me to take all of it seriously, not just a verse here and a verse there, I needed to understand the flow of thought. So context made the biggest difference. But then I also realized I needed the background, as much of it as I could get. I mean, you can't get all of it because, you know, 2,000 years ago, it's not still 2,000 years ago, and, you know, the people that, say, Paul was writing to, uh, we can't go interview them to see what circumstances exactly they were facing. But I began to realize, hmm, some of the studies I'd done before, actually, some of those things I'd learned that I just kind of took for granted, maybe I need to study them more. But especially I was learning at that point the, the early Jewish context. Um, <clears throat> and the, the first book I read, I was all excited. Unfortunately, I read another book, and it contradicted the first book in about 20% of it. And I was like, oh, no, what am I going to do? And so I asked one of my professors. He said, well, just keep reading. I'm like, oh, no, how long is this going to go on? Because I, I wanted, like, one book to give me all the information. And so you know, just his background, so that all I needed was my Bible, and I could go out and preach. But what I discovered was that I... Well, I just kept reading, but the Lord gave me such a hunger for it. So after about 10 years of that, um, and by then I had a, a PhD, was it 10 years? Maybe it was more than 10 years by then. Well, 10 years from when I really started getting into it. 
1980, 19, well, maybe a little bit more than 10 years. But anyway, um, I, I collected like 70,000 index cards of information that kind of dates me. We didn't have laptops back then, but, um, but I said, wow, you know, I don't want other people to have to spend all these years studying this, even though I enjoyed it. I, I, it'd be better if I could just, if I had it at my fingertips in one volume, I would have just used it. So that's why I wrote the Bible background commentary, was to make that available to other people. And of course, that was uh, 1993, on the verge of 1994. So 20 years later, there was a second edition uh, because, of course, in 20 years, you learn a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> and if I'm still alive uh, in, in the, the, yeah, if if it's possible, if all the things work out right in 2034, I'll write another revised edition. <laughs> <laughs> and just so the, the listeners know, that's the, if I'm not mistaken, it's the InterVarsity Press New Testament um, common, background commentary. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, and I think, you know, if you go on Logos or Logos, whatever you say, that they have, that's one of the main staples for commentaries. And you did that whole, like, normally the IVP backgrounds, if I'm understanding this properly, are, it's a multitude of authors and editors, right? But this one was just you. Is that kind of an abnormal situation for those? Well, this was the first one. So, okay. Yeah, it was just, I had this passion to get it done. And, and, um, an editor from InterVarsity saw an article I'd written um, while I was a PhD student and asked if, if I had any books I'd like to write for them. And uh, so I, I proposed this because actually InterVarsity had been the place that I thought of maybe doing it with because uh, I was involved with the, the graduate fellowship, uh, InterVarsity fellowship at Duke while I was doing my PhD. And yeah, so they they um, they took a while to get back to me. And meanwhile, I was in a kind of a crisis because the Lord had provided for me for all these years, all the way through my um, bachelor's, my seminary, my my doctoral work, and I was just <laughs> sometimes I didn't know. I was going to pay for the next semester. Some, sometimes I didn't know I was going to pay for the next meal, but the Lord provided all the way through. But now I was about to graduate with my PhD, and I didn't have a teaching position. And I couldn't understand what was wrong. Why don't I have a teaching position? And often I tell this story to my, to my doctoral students who are, you know, getting ready to go out, and they don't have a teaching position yet. So... I was just praying and, you know, trying to have faith, you know, God's going to provide. And, you know, that that was going on for a few months and, you know, it's getting towards the end of summer and I still don't have a teaching position. And I'm starting to think, hmm, how much am I going to need to live on just so my research files aren't out in the street? And I was, you know, so one Sunday night, I... I figured out how much I was going to need to live on that year, and I gave up in despair. I said, Lord, barring a miracle, I'm going to be on the street this year. And it was less than 24 hours later, University Press called me back and said, we would like to offer you 
uh, we want you to write the book and we'd like to offer you an advance on it. And it was to the dollar <laughs> that I decided the night before I needed to live on that year. Wow. wow. Yeah. Wow. And it wasn't my faith because at that point, my faith had, you know, <laughs> it, was like, you know, it was just, you know, God's grace taking care of the calling that he had for me. Um, he, he takes care of what he's called us to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't see those kind of things happen every day. I don't need them every day. But it, when push came to shove, when I actually need something, um, yeah, I've seen God come through in those times. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a good reminder as well. Um, I think I'll write I'll, I'll write a song about that to encourage the saints. I'm going to be on the streets this year unless he does a miracle. <laughs> but uh, no, that's, that's really good. So kind of fast forwarding a little bit, you wrote this, like these two huge books. We kind of joked about it with Medine on the other podcast called Miracles that I just came in contact with um, a few years back. I was doing... I can't remember how I first heard about them. And then I got your Acts commentaries, and we were doing a series on Acts and our young adult ministry and just using those as, as one of the primary uh, background commentaries. But I found the miracle books to be so compelling, um, and they were so well-researched, and I hadn't seen that combination like of a – and I'm sure they're out there. I just hadn't come across it before where there was such a – a rigorous scholarship putting miracles to the test where you felt like, man, I can read these things and be confident that they happen. And they really encouraged my faith as a person who had kind of grew up in a charismatic background, many good parts of it, but some of the parts, you know, where things were kind of overstated or exaggerated or even, you know, misrepresented to the point where I kind of got a distaste for it and threw the baby out with the bathwater and was like, eh, I just, I don't have, uh, not quite a cessationist, but just didn't have much um, confidence that miracles still took place and definitely didn't feel, you know, not in a way that informed me to pray with, with faith that, that something might actually happen. Um, but, but just as maybe, maybe catch us up on like, how did you come to write those books? And when you started them, were you already convinced that miracles were still happening like that, or did, did did this process surprise you in any way? Oh, it surprised me. I mean, I, I was not a cessationist, uh, and you know, I still prayed in in tongues and and uh, practiced the gift of prophecy. But miracles and healings, I was kind of shy about because I hadn't seen very many. I mean, I'd seen some, but I. You know, I kind of bracketed them off as anomalies. Um, like when I was a young Christian, I was working, uh, well, not working, I was uh, helping in a Bible study at a nursing home. And there was this one lady there who every week would say, I wish I could walk, I wish I could walk. She'd always come in a wheelchair. And one day the, the Bible study leader got out of his chair and went over to her and took her by the hand and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And I was horrified. I was like, oh, no, we're not allowed to do that here. <laughs> and she, and, 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 and from the expression on her face, I mean, she was horrified, too. <laughs> I knew she was going to fall flat on the, on, the, on the floor. And just I was, I was just paralyzed with fear. Uh, so definitely there was no faith on my part that caused anything, but he walked her around the room and 
from then on, she'd come to the Bible study saying, I love my Bible study, I love my Bible study, walking. Wow. And, and, and so, you know, I knew this wasn't just an emotional, you know, <laughs> uh, th this wasn't just a burst of adrenaline or something like that. I mean, she was, she was healed. And yeah, but I kind of bracketed that out. That wasn't something I saw normally. And, and so I started working on the book and I figured, okay, well, you know, I've, I've been healed of, of things, but these were small things like mosquito bites disappearing or, or whatever. Um, you know, and, and I knew of, I knew of stories of cancer going away, but I also knew people say, well, you know, there are remissions that can happen. Um, and what, what really, the thing that really started getting my attention and shifted the burden of proof for me that made me realize, okay, I need to. I need to stop being so skeptical was uh, it, it wasn't the most dramatic account that I'd heard, but it was so, it was so close. It was when uh, my wife and I were visiting her country of Congo and I interviewed Antoinette Malambe, who, you know, I'd already heard the story from my wife, but Antoinette Malambe, when her daughter Therese was about two years old, Therese cried out that she was bitten by a snake or cried out snake or something. Her mother ran to her, found her not breathing. There was no medical help available in the village. She, she strapped Therese to her back and ran to a nearby village where family friend Coco Ngoma Moise was doing ministry. Coco Moise prayed for, for the child and the child started breathing again. And the next day she was fine. So I asked Antoinette Malambe, how long was it that Therese was not breathing? And she had to stop and think to get from one village to the next village. And she said, it was about three hours. You know, six minutes with no oxygen, irreparable brain damage starts in. And yet Therese had no brain damage. She had a seminary degree. Now, I mean, not when she was two, but I mean, now <laughs> she has a seminary degree. And she's, um, she's doing ministry in, in Congo. And this really got my attention because Antoinette Malambe was my mother-in-law and Therese is my sister-in-law. And this became part of a, a larger web of eyewitnesses and medical documentation and so on. I mean, sometimes people raised after like eight hours or, or whatever, really significant accounts, many, many of them like the ones we have in the New Testament. Many accounts from people that I knew personally, but we just never talked about it. The, the subject hadn't come up. Some of them, even like like one guy, uh, I don't think this one's in the book. I think I, I discovered this after the book, but I mean, I'd worked together with him you know, three different summers in Nigeria. He had this scar, but I'd never asked how he got it. It just didn't, you know, I didn't have any idea. He'd actually been killed in an automobile accident. He'd been sent, you know, the hospital pronounced him dead. They sent him to a morgue. And while he was there, they found him moving. And they sent him back to the hospital like eight hours after the accident, eight hours after the, the police had pronounced him dead. And then the doctors had pronounced him dead. And the doctors were like, whoa, he's been dead so long. He must have so much brain damage. Uh, he's not going to be able to, to recover <sighs> anyway. Should we even treat him? But, you know, he fully recovered. and. And the person who who 
uh, let me know about this was actually a doctor friend in Nigeria who said, oh, you should talk with Timothy Alonide. I said, oh, Timothy's my friend. He said, well, th this is what happened. I'm like, oh, wow. I never knew. You know, that's how I got that scar. But anyway, I mean, so many, so many accounts. And, and actually, once I once I realized the pattern, I started asking my other friends in Africa, hey, have you ever seen any, anything? Like one of them, also from Nigeria, who, whom I worked with, I worked with closely. He said, well, uh, not very many. He sent me like seven pages. One of them was a, a child who uh, the neighbors had brought over. He was he was ministering in a non-Christian village, especially doing research there, ethnographic research. They knew he was a Christian. They, they brought him the, the body of their child. They, they said, you know, he died, but you're a man of God. Is there something you can do? So he he prayed for a couple hours. The child came back to life, handed him over to the family. Obviously, that made an impression. I, I asked him, do you just pray for everybody who's dead? I mean, how often does this happen? He says, no, I've only ever prayed for two people who were dead. One of them was my best friend. He didn't come back to life. And then this other, this other child. So, I mean, the story started coming in. And so good. Dr. Keener, uh, I have a question. Do you, do you encounter the same kinds of miracles here in the States? You hear a lot about miracles overseas. You hear about it in Africa, and people often ask, why do so many miracles happen there and not here? But I want to ask you, do you encounter miracles or research miracles that have happened in the same fashion here in the States or even Europe or these other countries? Yes, and actually, the ones here have an advantage well, many of them have an advantage in that there's there's usually medical documentation. Actually, there's not always because sometimes, I mean, there was a time, I guess I imbibed more skepticism during my doctoral work or, or whatever, because I believed in miracles all along, at least in principle. But in seminary, there was a time, actually before seminary, where I broke my ankle, but I couldn't go to a doctor. I didn't have any money. And it didn't heal correctly. Eventually, I could walk again, but I couldn't run anymore. After after a couple of years of this, where, you know, if I tried to run, <laughs> after going like maybe 20 feet or so, I'd have to limp because it hurt so bad. What One day after I'd been doing uh, ministry on the streets of New York, I God just gave me this faith in my heart that if I asked him that day, he was going to heal me. And I did. And he healed me. And next day, I ran up six flights of stairs to test it out. And, you know, I've been running pretty much ever since, except when I twist one or another of my ankles or my knee or something. But, you know, normally, I've been, I've been uh, exercising ever since. But anyway, that's one of the examples where there isn't medical documentation. I didn't go to a doctor. I didn't have the money to go to a doctor. But um, Dr. Chauncey Crandall is an example where... He was uh, he was called in to the emergency room as a cardiologist, West Palm Beach, to basically sign the death certificate. They'd been trying for 40 minutes to revive a person. He'd been flatlined for 30 or 40 minutes. So he, he checked everything. They'd followed all the American Heart Association protocols. They'd been trying their best to revive the guy. But, you know, at this point, it's it's hopeless. So he signed the death certificate. He was on his way back to his rounds when he felt the Holy Spirit prompt him to go back and pray for this man to have a second chance to know the Lord. 
Um, that does not happen very often. <laughs> but he went back, and he, uh, one of his colleagues entered the room again with him, and the nurse was sponging down the body of Jeff Markin. Uh, that's the guy's name to get it, uh, auto mechanic, uh, to get it ready for, for the morgue. Uh, but, you know, she hadn't detached all the equipment yet. Dr. Crandall tells me he, he laid hands on the man's, I think it was on the man's head. He laid hands on him anyway and prayed, God, if you want this man to have a second chance to know you, please raise him from the dead. And he did it out loud because he tells me that the nurse glared at him like, Dr. Crandall, you have really lost your mind. Uh, he turned to his colleague, said, shock him with the paddle one more time. And the colleague was like, you know, we all agreed this is hopeless, but hey, you want me to? I'll do it. Shocked him. Immediately, the guy had a normal heartbeat. And the nurse starts screaming, Dr. Crandall, Dr. Crandall, what have you done? Because, you know, six minutes with no oxygen, irreparable brain damage has started in. So he's like Frankenstein's monster. What is this? He was not just dead. He was quite obviously dead. Uh, Jeff Markin is white, but his extremities had already turned black from cyanosis. Dr. Crandall went and visited him a couple days later. And sure enough, the, I mean, the guy didn't have brain damage. Dr. Crandall had felt like the guy needed a second chance to know the Lord. Well, he did get a second chance to know the Lord. And together they, they travel and tell the testimony sometimes. Dr. Sean George in Australia, a consultant physician with a hospital there, he was flatlined for about an hour and a half, something like that. All the medical documents are there. He's a doctor, so he knows how to get medical documents. You know, his wife was also a doctor, one of the colleagues, and they really tried their best to revive him because, I mean, he was their friend. And of course, because they're doctors, they, they want to do that anyway. They said to his wife when she arrived, and she was also a doctor, say your goodbyes to him because there's nothing more we can do. And instead, she cried out to God. Immediately, he has a normal heartbeat. They, of course, they all jumped into action to do what they could at that point. You know, one of the colleagues thought this is the worst thing that could possibly happen because, I mean, at some point, she's going to have to make the decision to turn off the, you know, whatever life support we're doing because. He's, he's going to be a vegetable. All the systems have failed. You know, he wasn't conscious for a few more days, but when he woke up, he read his charts. He's back as, you know, full-time doctor again. All of his colleagues who were there, most of them are, are Hindus or Muslims, but all of them agree that it was a miracle that happened when his wife prayed. Yeah, there's just so many accounts that could be given. I've, I've been getting some more recently, um, so, some of them with medical documentation uh, especially the ones here in the West. But, you know, even even like a number of the ones I've gotten from India, I mean, the people became believers because of the dramatic thing that God did. It was so significant. I mean, they experienced social ostracism, persecution, sometimes having to flee areas from persecution. I mean, they gave up a lot to follow Jesus. They were really persuaded by something that was so out of the ordinary from what they'd seen before. So that itself, I consider to be pretty strong evidence that they were pretty convinced. Wow, so fascinating, the stories. Okay, so uh, I've heard it said, like, people say that um, the word miracle is not in the Bible. And so how do you define 
like a miracle and and are there different categories of miracles little miracles big ones or that is a super good question how many more hours do we have uh, <laughs> about six left and no, i'm just kidding okay, all right. well no that's a good question miracles appear in translations most translations of the new testament but it's true the the word actually means powers or acts of power the way that Miracles tend to be defined today is actually different from the way they were in the Bible. Through most of history, people defined miracles or what we call miracles as um, acts that God did that would demonstrate his power, his compassion, that generated awe. In other words, things that really got people's attention. Uh, maybe what uh, certain parts of the Bible call signs and wonders. Now, technically, in 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about gifts of healings, mm-hmm. or in James 5, where it talks about praying the prayer of faith, talks about healing. It doesn't actually have to be a sign in a dramatic sense to be a healing. So if God does it through a doctor, if it happens gradually, it's an answer to prayer either way. So we give God thanks no matter how it happens. Mm. but Usually today, well, actually, people use the language of miracle for all sorts of things. You know, my sports team, they won, a, they won sure. uh, the game. It's a miracle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got an A on the test. It's a miracle. Yeah. When, when you define it more narrowly, a lot of people have come to use the definition of David Hume. He was a Scottish philosopher. He actually didn't even follow his own epistemology or his own method of reasoning in this particular essay, but he wrote an essay on miracles. And it was a hot topic in his day. He was basically following the deist line of argument that already existed, but he had so much stature as a philosopher that many people just accepted his argument because this was Hume who said it. And Hume said that miracles are violations of nature, violations of natural law. Natural law can't be violated, therefore miracles can't happen. Now, that actually is not a very good argument, partly because certainly today, we don't define natural law the same way. We don't define natural law according to, I mean, we define it more descriptively rather than prescriptively. Mm-hmm. But even in his day, the Newton and uh, by his day, the Newtonians, they believed in biblical miracles. They said, okay, God set up these laws in nature, but God isn't subject to these laws. And so, you know, he's Hume didn't even make an argument for why God has to be subject to the laws. He just states his presupposition that, you know, if there's a God, God has to follow these laws of nature. He can't violate these laws of nature. And even using the language of violation is pretty provocative because, I mean, who says that certainly the biblical God wouldn't be subject to these to these laws? And look, if I if I drop a pencil. Uh, does anybody use pencils anymore? Well, so let's say I drop, uh, I drop my cell phone, <laughs> sure, and, and I catch it. Have I violated the law of gravity, mm. or have I simply acted within nature? Why should, why should the creator of nature have less power within nature to act than I do? I mean, that's totally deism. <laughs> but if you're not a deist, the argument doesn't work, and so. And also, most biblical miracles weren't 
I mean, you, you can't define most biblical miracles as violations of nature. Some of them certainly transcended natural law. I mean, like things like the, the original creation, Jesus' resurrection to a new order of existence, um, you know, the be- beginning of the new creation, uh, actually our, our spiritual rebirth. Those things aren't uh, according to the laws of nature. But I mean, even when God parts the sea, talk about something dramatic, parts the sea just as the Israelites need to cross it. It says he sent a strong east wind and blew it back all night. God didn't blow off nature. He worked through nature. God usually works through the things he's created because the creation is good. And so, you know, if God works through doctors, we may not call it a miracle, but we still see that as as God working. I mean, when Jesus fed the 5,000, that was pretty dramatic. Then he tells his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain. The next meal, they're not going to need a miracle. They're going to have leftovers. <laughs> and and God, God doesn't do miracles just to entertain us. He does them when they're needed for his purposes, his, his, his purposes in history. So th- these more dramatic things, God does them. What, you know, what's the cutoff between dramatic and not dramatic? I mean, we have things that kind of epitomize dramatic. Somebody gets raised from the dead, the sea gets parted, whatever. And then we have things where, well, my cold went away. <laughs> well, colds do normally go away unless they develop into something worse. Uh, but yeah, we thank God that God made our bodies to be able to fight infections normally. I mean, that's the norm anyway. That's still God's gift. We, we can kind of categorize, but you know, in terms of where to draw the line, What's assigned to one person may not be assigned to somebody else. So, for example, there's there's a couple atheists where I've asked them, uh, and, and, and uh, when I when I speak of atheists, don't think I'm like trying to be mean to atheists. Remember, I I used to be one. I love atheists, but I don't know how many of them love me. But maybe some of them do. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, a, a couple atheists I asked, you know, if somebody. Because they were like dismissing every line of evidence. They say, if somebody were raised from the dead in front of you, would you believe? And they said, no. I said, is there anything that would convince you? Um, there's there's one one skeptic who said, uh, and th- this wasn't to me, this was something that somebody, one skeptic said, you know, if if God just appeared to me directly and spoke to me directly and did it to the whole world at once, or something like that. I forget exactly what they said, but I mean, sometimes he will raise the bar of evidence just so high. They're not really sincere seekers of truth. God has given us enough evidence, and he's not obligated to, I mean, he's done so much for us. Life itself is a gift. I mean, even no matter what we go through, the very fact that we had life to begin with is a gift. So when people start playing with God, he, he's not going to, he's not going to play those games. But if people are really serious, you know, I was, I was saying, God, if you're out there, please show me. I thank God. He sent some people, but he didn't do it on my terms. He doesn't always do it on our terms, but if we're sincere, he gives us enough that if we're willing, he can start getting our attention. You know, that's, that's really good, Dr. King. I do have to disagree strongly with one thing you said. Okay. Because um, my grandma's leftover meatloaf is pretty miraculous. <laughs> it, I think it's like there's some kind of transubstantiation that happens overnight in the fridge mm. that it actually gets twice as good as it was in its original state. So that's the only clarification I want to make for our listeners. But um, but no, I do. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask you 
Well, and, and I'll say this too, the, the two volume. They ate, they ate leftovers for 40 years in the wilderness. <laughs> ah, gotcha. <laughs> yes. Amen. One person said that his mom's, his mom always served leftovers and they never found the original meal. <laughs> now that's great. I hadn't heard that one yet. Oh, that's great. Um, but yeah, so your your two volume books on miracles. One of them, I think, either all or most of the volume, maybe it's volume one, is dedicated to this um, David Hume argument and uh, kind of defining miracles. So I would recommend our listeners if you have you know if you have a couple years available to read through these books, <laughs> um, I would I would definitely start at the top because I think it's a unique um, approach. To I've seen a lot of people take him to task for different from different angles. Uh, there was even a secular philosopher who. Uh, I forget his name, but he he wrote a book called The Abject Failure of Hume, and he kind of takes a different angle. But this yours is the first one I've seen that really undermines his basic presupposition that miracles just don't ever happen. Um, and you show no, they're actually quite common. And if that's the case, then his whole argument falls apart on another score. But the second book, yeah, go ahead. Common doesn't common doesn't mean normative, but yeah, uh, yes. So, you know, you take you take the scale of the whole world. Yeah, we've got lots of them happening all the time. Just maybe in our individual lives, we don't have one happening every day, but yeah. No, that's good. And and so the second book kind of dives into more, you know, you cover things like you told us about the raising of the dead. You weeded out psychosomatic things that could, or things that could be explained on that, just, you know, to, to leave it to the, maybe the best examples. And you did nature miracles, all kinds of stuff. Well, this is the question I want to ask you. After doing this, this in-depth studies, how did it impact, A, your theology about miracles, and then, B, how did it impact the way you pray for miracles? Yeah, it, it impacted me a lot. I mean, I wish I could say it impacted me so much that uh, I, I would go into hospitals and start praying for everybody, but I, I haven't concluded that I have a gift of healing, <laughs> but I do pray for, for people to be healed, and sometimes they get healed, and sometimes they don't, but I know other people who, who have they they have a much higher rate of, uh, they seem to have more of a gift in in that area. But yeah, it really it really impacted me. the The book that I had done just before that was on historical Jesus research, and the approach that I took with that, I would just take the the minimum of evidence, and so, well, the minimum of 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 the most secure evidence that pretty much everybody would agree on, and work from there. And not to say that that's all that I would believe, but just to say that's what I would that's what I would present in that particular book. the The problem of that way of arguing is that it can bleed over into your way of thinking, so that I mean, if if the only things that are real are what you can demonstrate to a high degree of probability, then most of history didn't happen. Most of your life didn't happen, you know, because, you, you know, you, how are you going to prove this uh, to somebody else? So I, I'd gotten into the habit of thinking, and, and Medine, my wife, would say something to me, and I'd say, uh, can you give me evidence for that assertion? And, uh, you know, whether you're egalitarian or complementarian, I'm an egalitarian, but either way, you would get in trouble with your spouse if you say something like that. You know, her PhD is in history. So she had a right to say this, but she was speaking more from common sense when she pointed out, look, if you have the testimony of a reliable witness, that itself is evidence. 
Well, the Miracles book started me back on the course to common sense because the, just the evidence over a while, the cumulative evidence became overwhelming. Okay, this person tells me something, you know, I, I question them really hard. And then another person tells me something, I question them really hard. But after a while, you know, these are people who just exude sincerity, who claim to have witnessed raisings from the dead precisely when somebody prayed or they prayed. These aren't people who are out to make a name for themselves. These aren't people who are making any money off this. These are just ordinary people. And after a while, cumulatively, I realized, okay, the bar of evidence that I'm requiring is not a bar of evidence that is reasonable. Once once you believe that miracles, if, if any miracle has happened, then obviously miracles are possible. And if miracles are possible, I have an unreasonable bar of evidence for this. If miracles are possible, then I need to be willing to be open, even where I don't have uh, medical records, but I've got a couple independent witnesses that tell me they saw this happen. I need to be open to that, and it, it was a it was a shift in my in my thinking, uh, for which I'm I'm very grateful, and has has continued in in some other work since then. No, that's really good. And w- this is kind of a s- separate question, but do you find in your in your investigations? Do miracles tend to cluster around areas where the gospel hasn't thoroughly penetrated that yet? Or is it kind of all over the board? Like, do you see them just anywhere and everywhere? Or is there any patterns to it? I mean, they do happen in all sorts of places, but they do happen more in certain kinds of areas. So, for example, a friend uh, who was ministering in Mongolia told me that at the beginning, as the gospel was spreading there, miracles were all over the place. And then afterwards, what they needed more was the gift of teaching. And uh, a friend told me, uh, who was uh, among a certain people group in Northeast India, was saying that when the gospel first started there, people were being raised from the dead and so on. But after a while, uh, they really needed teaching. And he told me about a friend that he worked with at the time. Uh, This was actually how the gospel started spreading among that people group. There was a shaman in the village, and he uh, had been well-respected, but then he contracted leprosy, and so he was cast out of the village. One one day, a couple Christian ladies came by and prayed for him, uh, and I think I don't think they were from the village. I don't think there were any Christians in the village, but anyway, came by and prayed for him outside the village. That night, he had a dream where an angel touched him. He woke up completely healed of leprosy went into the village, the entire village was converted. And by the time my friends started working with them, half the region had already become Christian. So uh, in Mozambique, of course, this is happening. Uh, those of you who know Iris Global, um, Roland and Heidi Baker, and, and their uh, co-workers there have seen just massive, I mean, entire regions where the gospel is spreading. And of course, there's backlash, there's persecution uh, from certain uh, groups so many deaf people have been healed not everybody but so many have been healed so many blind people instantly healed publicly in these places so it it provides confirmation for the gospel like acts chapter 14 
where uh, Paul and Barnabas were ministering in uh, Neria Phrygia or Lycaonia. And uh, it says that God was granting that signs and wonders were done through their hands, uh, confirming the word of his grace. Well, he still confirms the word of his grace uh, in, in regions where that hasn't, hasn't been uh, received yet. But also, they continue to happen a lot in, in areas where people are more open to them. It's especially groundbreaking evangelism. That's where we see it in Paul's letters, uh, Romans 15, 19. I mean, Paul doesn't talk about it that much in his churches, but you know, he does say that you know, everywhere he went starting churches, it was his ministry was confirmed with signs and wonders because um, he's starting churches. He's laying foundations in new areas, uh, Romans 15. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, you yourselves witnessed this, these signs and wonders. But he also, where people are more open to them, they're more likely to pray for them. They're not as likely to dismiss them when they happen. You know, sometimes we see something. I mean, this was my problem back. You know, I'd seen some things here and there. But after a while, I started, you know, kind of saying, well, that's an anomaly. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe the woman in the nursing home, maybe she, she actually was only psychosomatically not able to walk. And it was just a, a coincidence that the Bible study leader thought that she would be able to walk if he, if he told her, rise up and walk in the name of Jesus. But that doesn't make sense on psychosomatic grounds, because from the expression on her face, <laughs> it wasn't her psycho. I mean, she didn't. She wasn't expecting anything. You know, sometimes we just dismiss things instead of responding with, with faith. It keeps us from being as gullible when we're like that. Some people are too gullible. Sometimes you can't always tell, you know, did this happen? Did this not happen? Would this have happened even if they hadn't prayed? And some things God just built into nature for our sake. But uh, his rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, Matthew 5, 45 or so. Having said that, we have this legacy of Hume, and maybe especially in academic circles and those influenced by them, you know, it's almost a virtue mm. to have unbelief, hermeneutic of suspicion <laughs> instead of a hermeneutic of faith. Mm. And so there are reasons maybe why we don't see it as often here in the West. Uh, but there's also another thing, and that is that medical technology is a gift. My, my, my African friends often tell me, hey, look, you know, we need miracles. A lot of times we die without the miracles, but a lot of people do die there. People who, who would survive if they had the medical technology we have here. So they, what they say is, you know, you guys have medical technology. That's a gift. You should rejoice in that gift. Again, Jesus fed the 5,000 when a miracle was absolutely needed, but their next meal, they'd have leftovers. And in the same way, it's not wrong for us to make use of these things. We have them. Miracles aren't needed as often here. The danger is we can get over-dependent on those. Let's be grateful for what we have. Let's thank God for what we have. And we have enough testimony and we have enough evidence to know that God does do miracles. He doesn't do things always as often as we want them. If he did that, then we would probably do the same way we do with things that are even more miraculous in a sense. They're even more awe-inspiring. I mean, DNA or 
you know, the, the design that God has created in the universe is, is so much more fantastic than, you know, just somebody's blind eye being opened. I mean, not that that's not fantastic, but, but we take that for granted because we see it all the time. The, what, what is distinctive about what we call miracles, they're what we call special divine action, or what theologians call special divine action, as opposed to maybe regular divine action. Even in Jesus' ministry, when he was uh, Matthew eleven five, uh, Luke seven twenty two, I think it is. They, they uh, John the Baptist has sent to Jesus. Has said, "Are you the one to come, or should we look for somebody else?" You know, I prophesied you're going to baptize in fire. I don't see any fire yet. Jesus sends word back to John the Baptist through the messengers. Uh, Tell John what you've heard and seen: the the blind see, the deaf hear. The disabled walk, and so on. He uses language from a couple passages in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, that talk about basically the kingdom. They talk about the the time of restoration. They talk about, you know, ultimately Isaiah talks about a, a new heaven and a new earth, new heavens and a new earth. You know, the the deserts will blossom with flowers and so on. It's a it's a time of restoration. Well. When Jesus was healing some sick people, you know, it wasn't a panacea for all the world's problems. He wasn't, he wasn't creating a new creation that everybody in the world could see. But as he says in chapter 13 of Matthew and 8 of Luke and 4 of Mark, the kingdom, it's like a mustard seed. It's, it starts out small. You know, all the vast glory of the future kingdom is invested in that small seed. And for John the Baptist, he's saying, look, these are signs of the kingdom. It's not the consummation of the kingdom, but it's a foretaste of the kingdom. And so, as you see these signs, if we, if we recognize that God does a miracle for anybody, whether it's for us or somebody else, as we look at that, it's a promise of hope because it's a reminder to us that there's going to be a time when the world will be made new when he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, when there'll be no more death, there'll be no more uh, COVID-19, there'll be no more uh, even colds, you know, he's going to wipe away all of that at a time of restoration. And the miracles are signs of that. They're a foretaste what he has for us in the future. Man, I feel like we're sitting in on, on an amazing deep devotional here. It kind of, I think this led into just how I actually wanted to um, wrap this up with with what you landed on there. I wanted to ask you, you know, it seems like even in best case scenarios where you have people full of faith that have the gift of healing, it's still, I don't, I don't even know if you have a percentage, but maybe somewhere between eight and 15% of the people they pray for actually gets healed. One of the concepts you talk about in your Acts commentary is is over-realized eschatology. And may, can you explain maybe what the gap is? Why don't we see, you know, if, if it's the case that by his stripes we are healed, and often, you know, you hear teachers saying that's present, so we have the availability to be healed now. And so if it doesn't happen, it's due to either maybe sin or lack of faith or sometimes. And sometimes that's even the way that people that are gifted at healing will speak. But even when you look at their ministry, it doesn't line up with that 100%. Can you maybe help us make sense of that in light of the overall testimony of Scripture? Yeah, I do know some people who 
have said that their percentages are a lot higher than that. Okay. I, I haven't met anybody who says it's 100%. Uh, but yeah, the gift of healing and the gift of teaching are two different gifts. <laughs> uh, although from their experience, obviously they can say a lot of things about healing, but yeah, there are different gifts. So there's a time coming when we're all going to be healed completely. <laughs> we'll have resurrection bodies. I mean, that'll that'll take care of everything. But I like to I like to joke uh, when I start talking about this. You know, you, you guys can look at me and see I have male pattern balding. Uh, I I wear glasses for my nearsightedness, and my students tell me there's some other things wrong with my head. But <laughs> we, you know, we 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 live in a world where there's still suffering and there's still pain. If if every Christian automatically got healed every time we pray. Everybody become Christians just just for that uh, benefit, rather than necessarily for for real faith in God. I mean, God values tested faith; He values genuine loyalty. If we believed that everybody always would get healed when we prayed, we'd also have a problem with history because you know there were a lot of great people of faith in the eighteen hundreds. People like Fanny Crosby, who was who was blind, actually. Um, people like Hudson Taylor, um, the guy uh, George Mueller, who who uh, ran orphanages on on faith. A lot of people with great faith, but none of them are alive now. A lot of the first century Christian leaders had great faith, but they're not alive now. I mean, if they could, if we could always get healed of everything, surely you'd have a few hundred fifty-year-olds, two hundred-year-olds running around. You know, we say that's absurd. Nobody says that, and for good reason. I mean, we we have to understand. I mean, the Bible tells us about the dramatic healings because those are worth talking about. I mean, that's what we need to be reminded of: is that God does miracles. We don't need to be reminded that death happens. That's something everybody knows and takes for granted. We do have cases in the Bible where not everybody gets healed. I mean, Elisha, uh, you know, he's he's doing miracles just like Elijah did. I mean, he raises, he raises uh, uh, the Shunammite woman's child in 2 Kings chapter 4, like Elijah uh, raised the widow of Nahum's son in 1 Kings 17. I think it's 17. You know, Elisha is this, this man of faith. God does all sorts of things through him. I think it's maybe Second Kings 13 or so. It says that when he was sick with the sickness with which he died, he was still prophesying. And then maybe it's chapter 14. It's after he died. They, some people, they're, they're in a hurry because a marauding band is nearby. So they, they throw in a corpse that they were planning to bury. They throw it in on top of Elisha's bones, and the corpse comes back to life. Elisha's bones were that full of power, and yet he died of sickness. People say, well, that's the Old Testament, but, and I could give more examples from the Old Testament, but, you know, Trophimus, if I left at Miletus sick, 2 Timothy 4.20, I believe it is, Philippians 2.25-27, Paphroditus uh, was sick close to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. He doesn't say, you know, I claimed it, it has to happen. He says, God had mercy on him. Also, Matthew 25, where it speaks of, you, you visited those who were sick and in prison, 
and so on. The least of these, my brothers and sisters. From the context in Matthew, I believe that that's talking about agents of the gospel who may have become sick, uh, poorly clothed, uh, hungry, and so on, as they're out on the kind of mission that he sent his his disciples out in chapter 10. You know, and if you give them even a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord, you'll, you'll be blessed. Uh, Matthew 10, 40 to 42. So in Matthew 25, I think that's a similar thing where, um, like Epaphroditus, some of these people are traveling as missionaries, and they, they, they face even sickness sometimes for, for the Lord's sake. And then, of course, Paul in Galatians 4.13 speaks of a bodily weakness of some sort. I don't think that was his thorn in the flesh, though. I think that's probably persecution, Second um, Corinthians 12.7. But in Galatians 4, yeah, I think it, it, whether it was, I mean, a virus or whether it was, you know, he was recovering from being beaten or, or whatever it was, uh, some people say it was an eye problem because in the context he talks about you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me, but that was a figure of speech back then, so I don't think that's related. And, and I say this as somebody who does wear glasses, but anyway. But we do have examples of that. I mean, those aren't the things that the New Testament highlights. It highlights, you know, everybody came to Jesus was healed, uh, and that was the Gospels and Acts. Those are on the cutting edge of the kingdom, so we do expect more in those contexts. It doesn't always happen for everybody. Again, I know some people where in their ministries, it's a really high percentage. And I think some of them probably have a different perspective on this than I do. And I, you know, I'm willing to listen to them and respect them, but not everybody has the same gift they do. And no, that's good. And so <clears throat> no, like I, I I would agree with that, like with that tension, kind of the already not yet aspect of the kingdom. Um, how do how do you recommend, or how do, how would they recommend the people you've talked to that would also share your perspective in that that doesn't happen for everybody, but they also lean into faith and prayer? Like how do we how do we bridge that gap as we pray, we, so we don't just end up saying, "Well, God, whatever your will be, you know, heal this person," but we actually lean into that side of, you know, Jesus saying, you know, move this mountain, that kind of deal, without buying into maybe the full fledged idea that it has to happen, I claimed it's already done, kind of deal. Yeah, be sensitive to the Spirit. Although sometimes, you know, well, and also keep in mind that God is bigger than we are. Um, it's Sometimes we think, oh, I don't have enough faith. It's not how big our faith is. It's only a mustard seed, Jesus says, that's needed. It's how big is our God. <laughs> it may only take a mustard seed, but Jesus says have faith in God. That kind of faith can move mountains because God is able to do anything. And so we pray with confidence in God's compassion, as we see illustrated in the miracles in the Gospels, the vast majority of which demonstrate compassion. And we see, uh, we, we have absolute confidence in God's power. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our trust no matter what. And so we pray expecting healing. We expect that, should I say most of the time, <laughs> maybe I don't see it, I'm not in situations where I'm praying for people in person all that often because most of my work is is teaching and writing, but especially writing. But anyway, we pray with expectation. If it doesn't happen, we praise God and we pray again because <laughs> we're standing with people in their need. Uh, we're not just dismissing it like, oh, well, if it's your will, is a way of dismissing 
caring about it. If people are desperate, then we stand with them in that desperation. And we trust in God's power. Um, Another setting where it often happens is settings of outpourings of the Spirit, you know, not just in new evangelism contexts, but in any context, well, not any, outpourings of the Spirit have different expressions, different times. I mean, sometimes everybody's weeping, sometimes everybody's laughing, whatever, but uh, in history, it's expressed different ways. In the book of Acts, it's expressed different ways, uh, but with certain characteristics that tend to follow through. But we see that a lot uh, where where more of these things happen in in many revival settings, those settings tend to come where people are humble. They tend to they tend to feature especially among the broken and the lowly, not among the proud. So, humbling ourselves before God. But um, in terms of building up the faith, immerse ourselves in Scripture. If if we're immersing ourselves in the world's narrative, you know, um, sitcoms or not not everything is bad, but I mean, if we're immersing ourselves in the world around us, some things that are actually antithetical to faith and some things that are just normal, I mean, people die, that's reality. But we don't immerse ourselves in God's word where we see an alternate reality that's also true and that is actually more true than the antithetical things that we sometimes hear. I mean, people watching horror movies and stuff, I don't understand that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to condemn anybody, but just what we fill our minds with, the, the renewing of our mind, God built our brains with um, neuroplasticity so our brains can actually adjust to something. We can actually, our brains can become addicted to pornography or something, but at the same way, with the renewing of our minds, our brains can become, the, the norm can become thinking about the things of God and looking at things from God's perspective and from an eternal perspective. Learning the way of faith, and you, and you may start small. I mean, before the burning fiery furnace, before the lion's den, Daniel and his three friends were tested with whether they were going to eat the king's food. So if we're faithful in the little things, God can prepare us for the for the bigger things. If we're faithful in the little tests of life, or what at least are little compared to what some other of our brothers and sisters are going through elsewhere, we'll be more ready when the big things come. Yeah, anyway, I'm talking too much. No, no, no. Ooh. So you heard it here, Dr. Keena said, get off that old one-eyed devil. Get in, the, get in that scripture. Uh, <laughs> Um, but you know, <clears throat> thank you so much for coming on Dr. Keener today. I had a, just a, maybe a couple quick more lightning round questions for our Patreon listeners for the, this is kind of like off the public record, but just for our, our special, uh, Patreon supporters. And one of the questions I had, um, was going to be about Bethel church. They recently were praying for this, um, child. I think she was two years old that had passed away. They were praying for her to be resurrected to, you know, back from the dead. And a lot of people thought, man, these guys are a cult. They're crazy. And this is wild. Why would you ever do that? I want to get your quick thought on that. And the second thing, you recently wrote a book with Dr. Michael Brown, where you guys were, were, were arguing kind of against a rapture. But I wanted to get just, just a quick sketch of your overall, overall view on what the eschatology looks like, what pre, the 
premillennialism kind of give us a quick view what you know and as a teaser for maybe in the future coming back and talk about more in depth because i know that's a that's another you know eight hours in itself but i just want to get a quick like sketch of that so for the first one in principle i don't know how much you know about bethel and redding california um but just in principle what are your thoughts on that a church that decided they were going to pray for the resurrection of this two-year-old We hope you enjoyed that interview with Craig Keener, and we actually have those bonus questions and answers on our Patreon right now. And so if you'd like to hear his answers on those questions, go to patreon.com slash freemindfm, and there's a link to that in show notes, and you can hear his answers there. A donation of any amount per month will get you access to all of our bonus episodes, the entire library, plus this bonus episode with Craig Keener. And so patreon.com slash freemindfm. We'd appreciate if you support us there. You can also comment on Instagram and Twitter at freemindfm. We'd love to interact with you there. And on Facebook, Freemind Podcast FM. Finally, if you haven't yet, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. That helps us get bumped up the search results and we can be discovered by more people looking for Christian worldview resources. Again, thanks for tuning in. We look forward to catching you guys next time. <laughs>